early in Christianity, when Christianity was really growing and thriving, you would have people who would believe in Christianity and in Jesus. And so there needed to be a way for these followers of Jesus to understand what they were believing. And so, you know, when you have membership class at Restoration, which we'll have in October, we have a one-day membership class over three hours. Well, in the early church, their discipleship or their membership class was two to three years long every single week for three or four hours every single week for three years. Now, why? Because it was a way for them to understand the Old Testament, the New Testament, the purpose of Jesus in this world. And through that discipleship, there would finally be a day when they would finally say, I'm going to commit and publicly state that I am a follower of Jesus. So they would be baptized, whether sprinkled or poured or immersed. They would be baptized and they would publicly make this statement. And this is how it went back in the early church. I believe in God the Father Almighty, in Christ Jesus, whose only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried, on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits on the right hand of the Father, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, remission of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now, if you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed, this is, sounds a little different from it, and rightly so, because in subsequent centuries, they would finally formulate in the 6th or 7th century what we now profess as the Apostles' Creed. What I read to you was called the Roman Creed in the early church, but through, uh, during the time of Charlemagne, the final form of the Apostles' Creed was fixed, and that's what we see here. Now, the Apostles' Creed, you cannot find in the scriptures, right? And so I'm not going to be preaching per se through the Apostles' Creed, but rather what we're going to do is we're going to look at each section of the Apostles' Creed and see where that's derived from scripture so that, and then expound from scripture why we believe what we believe. Now this morning, we're not even going to get farther than three words. Today we're going to look at these two first words, I believe. What does it mean when we say, as followers of Jesus, I believe? What does it mean for us as a church when we confess the Apostles' Creed most Sundays, we believe? What does that actually mean for us? Maybe for some of us here, we are skeptics, or we're seeking, or you're other than Christian. And for us, for some of you, you might be also wondering the question, what does it mean to actually believe and have faith? Well, this morning, as we've read this passage in Mark 9, we hear this desperate father say, I believe, help my unbelief. What does that actually mean for us as followers of Jesus to profess faith in Jesus? So what I want to do this morning is just look at briefly this story, break it down into understanding what does it mean to believe, but then also apply that to why we're studying the Apostles' Creed as we think about faith and belief. So let's do that here as we look at this story. Now, as we read uh, Mark 9, we see that this father comes to the disciples desperate because his son is being tormented by this spirit that's causing him to convulse, have seizures, foaming at the mouth, where even the spirit causes him to be thrown into fires and into water. Why? To destroy him and to kill him. So this father is desperate, 
And he comes to the disciples thinking that, that Jesus would be able to heal him. Now, Jesus is nowhere to be seen because he's up in the mountains with uh, a, couple, a few of his disciples. And they're not able to heal him. So Jesus comes down the mountain and hears all this commotion and all this arguing and fighting. He says, what's going on? And he finds out that the disciples have not been able to heal this son. And so what does Jesus say? He says, oh, faithless generation, in verse 19. Oh, faithless generation. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that as Jesus looked at the disciples, he's saying, well, you guys have no faith? And as he looks at, this, at that generation in their, in their cultural moment, that they didn't believe in anything? Well, obviously not. When Jesus said, oh, faithless generation, what he was saying is that they had no faith or a belief in Yahweh, the God of the scriptures. They had faith in many things, a belief system of many other religions and other gods, but there was a lack of faith in Yahweh. And I think the same is true for us today in our cultural moment, right? It's not that our culture doesn't believe in anything, But there are a million things that we can put our faith into. There's a cross pressure of beliefs and a million things that we can believe that are always being contested, right? You might believe in God, that's great. But that's your personal preference or your choice. Something that you've adopted privately as as you might see fit. But me, I'm going to choose to believe something else. And more and more, what we're beginning to see with all these contested beliefs in our culture right now is that less and less is put in a higher transcendent power. There is no supernatural, but what we now believe in is everything that we can touch and see that's physical and that's natural, right? We've closed off the world to anything transcendent, but we are still willing to put our faith and beliefs in other things. So while we, we would say that there's a lack of faith in God or a higher power or the supernatural, faith still permeates all of our secular world. It could be in technology. It could be in science. It could be in your own self, being a self-made man or woman. It could be in the government and politics. It could be in the economy. But whatever we put our hope in, we believe that if we put our trust in these things, if we put our belief in these things, that we will attain utopia, that we will reach heaven and the world that we have longed for. So it's not that we are a faithless or a lack of belief culture. We believe in many things that are being contested 24-7 that is your own personal choice and are always being questioned and it's always private. That's the first thing we have to understand about our culture is that we we believe many things. And much of it is in our secular world that's closed off to the supernatural and transcendent. But here's what's so fascinating. As Jesus says, O faithless generation, generation, what intrigues me is the Father's response. In verse 22, he says, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And what does Jesus say? He says, If you can't, 
All things are possible for one who believes. And then this father, in his desperation, cries out, which is the same word that is used to describe Jesus when he hangs on the cross, when he cries out to his heavenly father. He cries out, and this father has that same crying out, and he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. The literal translation is, I have faith. Help my non-faith. And what we see in his confession of saying I believe but help my unbelief is that belief or a faith is okay to be imperfect and be messy we're not called to have everything right we're not called to have all our ducks in a row where we know every single theological or doctrinal truth of scripture and have it all set the disciples never did followers of Jesus haven't But what it is, is a confession to say, I don't have it together. I don't know everything. And while I can still rationalize and use science and use the different means that we have to be able to say I can at least make certain decisions and have thoughts, rational thoughts, there's a point in which we recognize nothing in this world can give us the solid, foolproof answers and evidence that we need. And that's okay. It's messy. At the second Saturday yesterday, as we looked at what, whether we can trust the Bible, Brian Berkey helped us, helped us see that everything requires faith and belief. There's nothing in this world, whether it's other religions, whether it's your secular viewpoints in science, technology. We've seen that over the last few years, right? How all of these things are so many holes. But what are we willing to stake our faith and claim? And it can't just be knowledge. It can't just be an assent to even believe. But it's what are you willing to put your trust in? And here, this father puts out the most precious thing he has, his own son, and says, I'm willing to put all of my faith and believe and trust in this Jesus. I have all my doubts. It's messy. It's not clean. But I'm willing to trust And that's what belief is here for this father and for us. As Tim Keller says it, he says it like this. In the father's response, it's a way of saying, accept me not because of what I am, but of what what you are. The first step into access to the presence of God is not holiness, it's helplessness. And that's what we see as one of the most important ingredients to faith and belief. It's a helplessness. It's a desperation. It's realizing that this Jesus must be the one that I'm willing to put all of my eggs into. And it doesn't get any easier for him, right? When you read that he brings his son to Jesus, what do we see? The son gets worse. He gets worse. And Sometimes faith and life is like that. Whatever you put your faith in, whatever it might be, it gets messier, but... Is it foolproof in the sense that you can put your trust in it? And we see that in our Christian faith, Jesus seems to be the one that we can put all our full hope and belief and faith in because he answers and we see it through him. That's the last thing we see here about faith and belief is that it's not in our own abilities or in our own faith or our own faithfulness, but it's rather in the object of the one that we trust. When my kids come up to me and say, Dad, can I have that app? and I won't say which apps, or can I hang out with this friend at this place? And initially, I'm just like a little weird. I'm like, nah, I don't trust you. But they're like, trust me, dad. 
What are they saying? They're saying it's a relationship, right? That faith and belief and trust is a relationship, not just knowledge. It's not just assenting to who they are, who I am, or to the app, or to who their friends are. It's a relationship that says, I'm willing to put all my trust into you and who you are. And in Jesus, we see full integrity, full love, full compassion, the one who actually brings full healing. Maybe not on this side of heaven, but in his return, we see the promises that have been true and will continue to be true till he returns. This is what we see in belief. There are many beliefs that challenge and contest what we believe. Ultimately, we can bring our mess, our doubts. But in our doubts and in our helplessness, we have one who is fully capable and faithful in Jesus. That's what faith and belief looks like for the Christian worldview. But what does that mean then as we are studying the Apostles' Creed for the next three months? What does it mean when we say, I believe, as it pertains to the, the, the Apostles' Creed? Well, I think first, as we apply this, is that the Apostles' Creed brings clarity for us. It brings clarity, right? When we think about Jesus saying, oh, faithless generation, I would say now in our culture, you can actually say, oh, faithless or fractured generation, Think about the last eight years of what we've gone through in the United States. So much of the church and Christians themselves are so fractured, let alone our society and our culture. Over the last eight years, we've, we've dealt everything from racial tension to Christian nationalism, to politics, to COVID, and where to, whether or not to wear masks, to Roe v. Wade, we are a hot mess. And the word evangelical has been completely thrown out because we don't know what that means anymore. We are a fractured culture and a fractured church. And in this moment, we have the Apostles' Creed that has been around for 1,500 years that gives us clarity. With all the contestability of beliefs and personal preferences, this clarifies both positively what we believe and negatively in what we don't believe. It's one of the reasons for our membership classes, if you've ever been to one, in that first, the first thing we ever do that I ever show you or talk to you about is the three concentric circles. The middle being the core, the second circle being uh, the convictions, and the third being our commitments. And what we always say is it, the only thing that you are required to hold to when you come to restoration and become a member is the core. Keep the main thing the main thing, and that's the Apostles' Creed. In a fractured world where there's so many contested beliefs, this clarifies for us, and it's been doing that for 1,500 years. There's nothing new under the sun, and it gives us a clarity and really a beauty and a mission to say this is truly what we believe as followers of Jesus, whether you want to call it evangelical or Christians or followers of Jesus or disciples. This clarifies what we are called to believe. Keeps the main thing the main thing. But secondly, I think it brings unity for us. There's a story I read last week, and it goes like this. It's a fictional story, and you probably understand pretty quickly. It goes like this. I was walking across a bridge one day, and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. So I ran over 
and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he said. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what, he asked. And I said, well, are you religious or atheist? He said, religious. I said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? Christian, me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant, me too. What kind? Baptist? Wow, me too. What franchise? Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God? Or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God. I said, me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God Confession of 1879? Or Reformed Baptist Church of God Confession of 1915? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God Confession of 1915. I said, die, heretic, scum. And he pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> it's a silly story, one that made me chuckle. But this is the reason why the Apostles' Creed is so important. This is why we say what we believe. It unites us. Now, this doesn't mean we just ignore the differences, but it gives us a way, the Apostles' Creed gives us a way to live in humility, in gentleness, in love, and patience, to lay aside the differences and to look for and celebrate what we have in common, which is the gospel of Jesus, the beauty of what gives us hope in this world. There are so many different, different denominations, right? You think about Orthodox, Roman Catholics, Baptists, Pentecostals, Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, and so forth. And every denomination has its strengths. It has its weaknesses. It has its unique story and its unique teachings and traditions. But all too often, we're like little kids fighting on the playground. But there's, here we have this one thing that has united Christians for centuries. The Apostles' Creed. In a book that I've been reading called Rooted, this is what these pastors say. They're, they say, there is something beautiful and extraordinary about knowing that when you confess the Apostles' Creed, there are people all over the world doing the same thing in different languages. Swedish Lutherans, Korean Presbyterians, African Pentecostals, Guatemalan Catholics, Chinese house churches, Egyptian Copts, all can affirm this is what we believe. Isn't that beautiful? We're able to say this is what we believe. And even as Jason Huang, our church planting resident, has shared, this is the things he's going to run into as he plants this church and meets and develops relationships with people. I think that's one of the beautiful things I actually take pride in as a pastor of our church, that we don't have so many uh, PC members transferring from one church to another. One of the beautiful things about this is that we have many people from different places who are unchurched, de-churched, former Catholics, um, those that come from Baptist backgrounds, non-denominational, non Presbyterian as well. We have this beautiful, rich story to be able to share with one another that unites us here with the Apostles' Creed. But there's a last thing here that I think is important as we think about what it means to believe is that this gives us a story. It gives us a story. A Native American proverb says this, the one who tells the story rules the world. I like that. Not for power, but it rules the world. Why? Because story shapes our identity. It gives us a purpose. It gives us mission. It shapes who we are. Science actually shows neurologically stories actually do something to our brain. It transforms us and shapes us, and stories are always do that, right? There's a reason why we think if we buy that house or car, if we have a number of children, that that will give us satisfaction and happiness. Why? Because that is the American dream. That story has been told 24-7, and we bought into it. 
And even though we say, well, that's just fabricated, it's not true, or you watch a commercial, you're like, that's not true, but there's a little bit of us that go, if we just do that, it'll happen. Why? Because that, it gives us identity, it gives us hope, it gives us mission. And here, while a creed is a, a summary of statements, this Apostles' Creed is a story. Yes, there's the, the first paragraph that's about God, the second paragraph that's about His Son, Jesus, and the third about the Holy Spirit and the, and the uh, implications of the Holy Spirit. But if you read this, it takes the millions of words in the Bible and boils it down to this beautiful story of God's creation that ends with eternity. The plot, it includes God becoming man. The crisis is Jesus' suffering and his death. The resolution is his resurrection and his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit to equip the church to live faithfully and to see the resurrection of the dead. It's this beautiful story, not just a statement of beliefs. It's a story that we get to retell every single week that shapes us, gives us identity, gives us mission. And you know, you do that, we do this all the time. Let me ask any of you, maybe kids that are in this room, why do your parents tell you to finish everything off of your plate? Why? Why? Because there are people in other countries who are starving to death, right? That is a meta story that we have all believed, and that's why we're called to eat everything off of our plate and eat that broccoli as well. But it also comes in negative ways for me, even as I think about stories shaping me. As a kid, I was told a certain kind of story about my African-American brothers and sisters. And that has caused me to have implicit biases and even racist thoughts that have had to be undone over time. How? By story. By relationships. And you see, this offers us the beautiful hope of the gospel when we tell this story and retell this story every single week. Because in the midst of a broken world, like this father who is helpless and desperate, we actually have hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ because it ends with what? With eternity. Revelations says that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You might be exhausted and helpless like this father in the story. You might be thinking my marriage is so bad I don't think I can take it much longer. Where can I get the strength to go on? Or you might be thinking I can't get out of bed to go to that job I hate one more day. You might be disheartened by the injustice you see around this country or what happened in Memphis this past week or by the darkness of your own heart and you can't bear the loneliness that you feel or the struggles with chronic pain and sickness. Where can you get that strength for today? It's through the story that we see in the gospel. I believe. We believe. It might not be perfect. You might have your doubts and all your mess, but we see here this beautiful story that we get to tell each and every single week together. And where do we find that? It's not just in the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed cannot save you or give you the hope you need. It's in the one who is faithful in Jesus. And that's what we get to do here at the table this morning. This table that reminds us of the story of a love that is unconditional, a love that is sacrificial, a love that he offers you and me, though we are 
a hot mess, that we come with all our doubts and our struggles, and we, we believe the cultural the stories that say, if you just buy into this and that, that you'll be happy. He says, come to the table, eat, drink, and may you find your hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the greatest story ever told, not just a greatest story, but the true story of history that gives us the hope that only can come in Jesus. So I pray that wherever we are, in our faith or in our beliefs. Lord, help us in our unbelief so, Lord, we might set our eyes on you. Do that as we come to the table. Strengthen us, nourish us, so that our faith might be strengthened, not because of anything that we can do, but because of what you offer us here at the table. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.